Well, good morning, friends. Thank you for your prayers for all of us as we spent this last week in Kansas City on the 8612 student mission trip. I love our students and I love seeing them in action serving. It's great to be back home and to be with you here today. We have been walking through a series on the spirit-filled life for the last couple of weeks. And we've been calling this series Constant Feasting. Last week, John talked about intermittent fasting and how it might be a good idea for you physically, but spiritually, it's a really bad idea. If we receive spiritual nutrition only on Sundays, and then we go about the rest of the week without it, we are spiritually starving ourselves. But instead, what would it look like to live a life of constant feasting? To tap into the rich goodness of the Holy Spirit each and every day. This, my friends, is how we were meant to live. See, as we leave this place every Sunday and we go about our everyday lives, we're faced with a barrage of temptations that the enemy places in our path. John Ortberg tells the story of a time when he and his wife went fly fishing together for the first time. And their guides told them that to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. They said that to a fish, life is about the maximum gratification of appetite for the minimum expenditure of energy. For a fish, life is see a fly, want to fly, eat a fly. Now, rainbow trout never really stops to think about where his life is headed, right? Um, the fish are just a collection of appetites. A fish is a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. So while they were on the water, Orberg said he started to think about how dumb the fish really are. Hey, swallow this. It's not the real thing, it's just a lure. You'll think it will feed you, but it won't. It'll trap you. If you were to look really closely at the lure, you'd see the hook. You'd know that you were, once you were hooked, it's just a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. Now you'd think the fish would wise up and notice the hook or the line. You'd think the fish would look around at all of their fish friends who go for a lure and fly off into space and never return, right? But they don't, it's ironic. We say fish swim together in a school, but they never learn. Yeah. Aren't you glad we're smarter? Now, how many times have we not seen the hook until it was too late? We get lured into the same pitfalls over and over again. So our question for today then is this, how do we steer away from temptation and live a life of spiritual fruitfulness? Now, the answer is found in our passage for today. So as you open your Bibles to Galatians 5, let's refresh our memory from where we left off last week. We learned that there's an internal battle going on inside each one of us, a battle between flesh and spirit. And we learned that legalism, trying to follow the rules on our own strength, is powerless to take care of our sin. Only the Holy Spirit can transform our desires and to help us to experience the freedom of life in Christ. So now as we pick up in verse 19, sorry, we're gonna see how that plays out. So listen as I read Galatians 5, 19 through 26. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Sometimes what the world sees in Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. And it's not just the outside world looking in. Some of us have grown up in homes or in churches where it seemed like the Christian life was all about what you do or what you don't do. And sometimes the don'ts seem a lot more fun than the do's. It's not true, of course. What God is calling us to is not an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. It's that full, abundant, joy-filled life that God offers to us. Now, a person who follows Jesus, their life will look radically different, but not because they're better at following the rules and avoiding temptation. In fact, science shows that we're really not as good at that as we think we are. But it's not just about how good we are at sin management. Instead, it's about which life pattern we're following. See, Galatians 5 presents us two options. The first pattern is the false self, the way of the flesh. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the self? I like how one pastor put it. He said, we often talk about ourselves as if we really know what we're talking about, as if we know exactly what it means. We think, I'm the one calling the shots. I'm the one inside of me who wants certain things and doesn't want other things. But I think the Apostle Paul captured the real truth when he said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now the implication here is that each of us has two distinct selves. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about these selves as flesh and spirit. But I think sometimes this can trip us up because often when we hear the word flesh, we think that it has to do with our bodies. You can see from the list in Galatians 5 that some of them involve our bodies, but some of them don't. So in the 20th century, in order to make this distinction more clear, some uh, Christian writers began to speak of a false self in contrast to a true self. So here's the idea. The idea is that we were created in God's image. But at the fall, sin entered the world and began to corrupt everything. Our very self has been corrupted, like a corrupted operating system um, that's functioning outside of the way it's designed. So here's how that played out for Adam and Eve, the very first humans when the fall took place. First, they became self-conscious in a way that they never had before. They began to experience shame, and they found that it was difficult to take responsibility for their actions. They began to lie and to place blame on others. They became preoccupied with how they appeared to others. They became trapped inside self-centeredness. And they sought out the good gifts of God while rejecting the invitation to deeper union with God. Now, I think we can all see that it's not just Adam and Eve who experienced these pitfalls. These are characteristics of the false self. 
Many of us probably first notice these tendencies in us, maybe in our teenage years, when we become self-conscious with an intensity that we've never known before. And even if the pressure of self-consciousness subsides a little bit as we get older, we continue to put a lot of energy into maintaining that false self. Now, the good news is that a true self, a soul, that part of ourselves that's in intimate relationship with God, is always there inside of us. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But first, let's explore the impact that the false self has on us. The false self leads us away from the ways of Jesus and into corruption. And we can see in Galatians 5 how that turns out. Let's look at these verses together. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual activity outside of marriage, impure thoughts, and debauchery that's casting off restraint or self-control. Idolatry and witchcraft, both religious sins, hatred, discord or quarreling, jealousy, fits of rage, that's like angry outbursts, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, both of these have to do with divisions between people, and envy, drunkenness, wild partying, and the like. Now about this list, first of all, it's not a complete list. We can tell at first glance because Paul ends his uh, phrase with, and the like. So we know that there could be plenty of other options. Also, there are similar lists other places in scripture. And they're all context specific. They're related to the particular struggles of the community to which they were written. So if Paul were writing to us, I imagine some of the vices that he might include would be the same. And some of them might be different. But Paul does seem to be making a deliberate point here that the acts of the flesh are more than just wild living. Paul sets these sins on an equal playing field that, for me, hit a lot closer to home. See, I think sometimes we look at the outside world, outside of the church, and especially at those traits at the beginning and the end of the list, and we think, that's what's wrong with the world. But, friends, I'm afraid that the outside world looks right back at us And especially at those traits at the inside of the list, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and they say, that's what's wrong with the church, and they want no part of it. After all, this list was written to the church in Galatia, to Jesus' followers. So we need to take a good look inward at ourselves when we read it. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I personally feel the struggle with these things. I struggle with wanting to project an uh, image of holiness, even when sometimes I'm experiencing anger or selfish ambition or I'm envious of someone else. And the truth is that all the vices on this list, those that come from our false self, are habits that destroy others and destroy ourselves. They are dehumanizing qualities. They obscure the beautiful image of God in us and they blind us to the image of God in others. And so Paul gives a very sharp warning at the end of verse 21. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty scary, right? But Paul isn't focusing here on individual one-time lapses. When that happens, we fix our eyes back on Jesus. We ask for his forgiveness and help, and he reaches out a hand of grace and lifts us back up out of the pit. Now, when Paul says those who live like this, he's referring to those who regularly act in the ways that are listed among the works of the flesh. It's not about individual mess-ups, it's about patterns. 
So remember, the way of the flesh is living according to the pattern of the false self. That self that tries to operate outside of God's authority and reign in our lives. Now as we look at the next part of the passage, Paul sets up a stark contrast to the way of the flesh, or false self. So now we will look at the true self, the way of the spirit. The list that starts in verse 22, which Paul calls the fruit of the spirit, is not talking about cherries or mangoes or strawberries or kiwis. Some of you have that fruit of the spirit song in your head from church growing up. But this fruit isn't something that you buy at the farmer's market. This fruit is the beautiful result of our true selves when we live according to the pattern of the Holy Spirit. Now, if this list at first glance seems more boring to you, picture it this way. Picture two opposite sides of the street. On one side of the street are people who are acting according to the ways of the flesh, according to their false selves. You see plenty of wild living, addictive behaviors, factions, jealousy, fits of rage, envy, and so on. It's an unhappy and dangerous place full of destructive tendencies. Now look to the other side of the street. On the other side of the street, people are living out of their true selves in the way of the Spirit. On this side, you see people who are genuinely loving one another as God loves us. You see people who are pursuing what is good for one another, living in peace with one another, and treating one another kindly. They're full of joy and peace and all the other qualities on Paul's second list. Now, which side of the street seems more appealing to you? Which one of these two groups of people do you want to belong to and to be like? Friends, this is how life was meant to be. If the first list was full of dehumanizing acts, then this second list is full of rehumanizing qualities. These are qualities that help restore the image of God in us just like a painting that has been destroyed but is being restored. And it's no accident that love appears first on the list. The Galatians had been struggling with legalism, and we saw last week in verse 14 that precedes our passage, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is really the umbrella for all of the other spiritual fruit that Paul lists out. Jesus emphasized the importance of love too in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So friends, see, Jesus has modeled it for us as I have loved you. Jesus has commanded it. And Jesus says that this will be the defining characteristic for a watching world of what disciples of Jesus are like. In fact, let's put the list of the fruits of the Spirit back on the screen again. See the ending there? It says, against such things, there is no law. Now certainly in this verse, Paul might be taking a jab at those who insist on keeping the huge bulk of Jewish law. But I like what N.T. Wright suggests. Even more so, Paul is thinking about what other people see when they look at the body of Christ. See, in Paul's day, The view of the church was in some ways similar to how people see us as radically different and maybe even subversive. Well, Paul is saying, if you live like this, they won't have anything to complain about. So how is this life even possible? How do I get access to the pattern of the the spirit-filled life? Look with me next at verse 24. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This verse is saying that when we first asked Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, something truly remarkable happened. Picture standing in the waters of baptism and we see how it plays out. We died to our old way of life where we crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And then we were raised to walk in newness of life, free to live according to our true selves. It's a past action already accomplished for those of us who follow Jesus. Our flesh wasn't just put in time out. We crucified it. Now, if you've heard anything about ancient Roman crucifixions, it was an ugly, violent, once and for all ending. When we make Jesus our Lord and Savior, we don't have to live under the tyranny of the flesh anymore. But, we all know there's a but because we experience it, right? But when we try to take the reins of our life and to live according to what the flesh desires, we choose the false or the old way of life all over again. We revert back to the patterns of our false self. So in some ways, even though we already crucified the flesh, we want to crawl back off the cross and resurrect the flesh. So it's really a process where we have to choose again each day to crucify the flesh and its desires and let it stay dead. Now I heard a story, totally made up, not true, about a woman who lost her beloved husband of many, many, many years. And she knew how much she would miss him, and so she put his embalmed body in a glass case in her living room where every day she could say good morning to him, she could see him as she was coming and going and talk to him. But after some time, she went on an extended trip. She met a wonderful man, and after a whirlwind courtship, they were married. As they returned home from the trip, he wanted to carry her across the threshold of their home together. And he almost bumped right into her old dead husband sitting right there in the case. Well, the new husband wasted no time in going out in the backyard, digging a hole, and burying the first husband. Now, it's a silly story, but when we follow Jesus and we crucify our old selves, we can't keep them at, just at arm's length and admire them from time to time. We dig a hole and we bury them. And we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to live out of our true selves instead. We can only do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, not through our own efforts alone. One pastor suggested that it's like holding a book flat on your open hand. Now, as long as your hand is under the book, gravity cannot make it fall. Gravity is still present. Um, but it's just that the muscular force of the arm and the hand is stronger than the force of gravity. Now, in the same way, the Holy Spirit is stronger than our sinful nature, which is always present and wants to pull us down. But as long as we depend on the Holy Spirit to hold us up, then our sinful nature cannot pull us down. As long as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we live in our true selves, where we crucified the desire of the flesh, and they have no power over us. So how do we produce fruit and avoid those acts of the flesh? How do we live in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's how. We join the parade. We keep in step. One commentary I read said that verse 25, in a brief statement, expresses the whole of Paul's ethics. So look with me at it together. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, since the Holy Spirit is our leader and guide, our job then is to fall in line with where the Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit offers us the pattern of living from our true selves, 
and we line up our life according to that pattern. Let me give you an illustration. I've lived most of my life in Texas, so many of you may not know that I'm a New Orleans girl. I was born there, I spent most of my formative years in elementary school uh, there, and my, most of my family still lives around there too. Now we have a strong tradition in New Orleans that I'm guessing many of you haven't heard of. Are any of you from New Orleans, by the way? Oh, my people are not here. Okay. <laughs> So, do you know about the second line? We have a picture to show you here. If you're not from New Orleans, which I guess you aren't, let me tell you about it. The second line, I think, is one of the most beautiful things about New Orleans culture. It has its roots in funeral processions with big brass bands, and it was sometimes used as segregation was ending to let people know about social services that were available to them. Now they're used in weddings, community celebrations, and just about any other opportunity for people to get together. They're really like block parties in motion. So here's how it works. It's a parade that's led by a grand marshal out in front, or the bride and groom if it's happening at a wedding, followed by a big, big, big brass band. That's called the first line. But then, equally important, comes a second line. And the second line refers to the spectators who join or follow the first line and contribute to the walking parade. So this is what separates a second line from any other New Orleans parade. Groups are not only welcome, but encouraged to follow along and to allowing the second line to grow as it marches. Everybody's welcome, and it's one of the most joyful celebrations that you can imagine. Now, I told you my family are New Orleans people. We actually had a second line at my cousin's wedding that I officiated just a few weeks ago. So let me show you a real short video of what that looks like. <laughs> Doesn't that look so fun? Now here's why I think that a second line might be the perfect illustration of verse five. First of all, the Holy Spirit is our grand marshal out in front and leading the way. The Spirit knows the route ahead of us or the pattern of life for us to follow and guides us and directs us each step of the way. And all we have to do is keep in step. And second, as you can see, it's a whole lot of fun. The second line isn't like a gloomy chain of prisoners shuffling their feet. Along, it's not like a strict military regiment where you get yelled at for having your own unique style of stepping. It's a joyful, celebratory party in motion. It doesn't mean your toes won't get stepped on or you won't bump into someone else from time to time, but the journey is an adventure and it's lots of fun. Also, and perhaps most importantly, it's a community experience. You can't have a second line with just one person. It's meant to be enjoyed and experienced with others who are moving in the same direction. And this is one of Paul's main points in Galatians 5. His central concern is for the har harmony of Jesus' followers in Galatia. The unity of the church goes hand in hand with the call to holiness. Now, I like what N.T. Wright says about unity and holiness. Unity looks comparatively easy if you don't care about holiness. You just get together and you ignore differences of lifestyle. And likewise, holiness looks comparatively easy if you don't care about unity. You just split off from everyone else who disagrees with you. Now, in both cases, of course, looks deceive. But this hard struggle for Paul's unique blend of holiness and unity will involve suffering. 
including the potential for misunderstanding and criticism from all sides. And verse 26 names a few of those possible pitfalls. But friends, this is why we have the Holy Spirit as our parade marshal, leading us and guiding us along the route. Now, the final way that I see the second line as a perfect example of keeping in step with the Spirit is that it's acceptable and even expected for you to invite others to join in. As those around us see the fruit of the Spirit on display in our lives, they'll see a new way of being human, living out of our true selves the way that God intended. They'll be drawn to this magnetic appeal and they'll want to experience it for themselves. Our privilege is to get to invite them to join the parade. It's experiencing life together as we fall in line with the Spirit. Now as we close, maybe you, like me, are thinking about your own tendency to fall back into living from your false self, exhibiting traits like jealousy, selfish ambition, dissension, or whatever else is your particular pitfalls. And maybe you're thinking about how small and pitiful the fruits of the Spirit can sometimes appear in your life. Let me assure you, you're not alone. John Stott points out that there's only one person in the whole long checkered history of the world in whom the fruit of the Spirit has ripened to perfection. That is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was the epitome of love. In fact, 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus showed us how to love one another as he loved us. And moving on down the list of fruits, Jesus said that his joy would be in us and that his joy would be made complete. He promised to give us his peace. Then he was patient and kind and full of good works. He was faithful or reliable, meek and gentle in heart, and he had perfect self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. Friends, as we keep in step with the Spirit, we are being transformed into Christ-likeness. And this week, let's pray every day that we would hear the music of the Spirit and fall in line with the Spirit's leading in our lives. Let's link arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ and celebrate the ways that God is leading us forward together in unity. And let's look around and invite others to join in. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have sent us to show us the ways of Jesus, to show us the patterns to live by. Lord, we confess to you that sometimes we have a tendency to take the reins ourselves, to fall back into our own patterns of living according to our false selves in the way of the flesh. Lord, we don't want to live like that. We see that your way is the best way. And so God, we ask that you would continue to help us to follow along, to keep in step with your Holy Spirit as you lead us and guide us each day. Make us attentive to the ways that the Spirit is leading and guiding us, the ways the Spirit is at work in our lives. Help us to notice what you are doing and where you are leading us. Lord, give us a willingness to step in line, to follow the Spirit's leading, and to invite others to join in with us. And Lord, as we do so, would you continue to grow this beautiful fruit in our lives, that we can demonstrate your love and your witness to the watching world. It's in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.